0: Years ago, but it remains one of the most privileged moments of ministry I've ever had. The Greenslade family had been part of the St. Michael's Church family for some years, but their eldest child, Charlotte, who was then 16, was really quite sick. She'd survived leukemia as a toddler, but the aggressive treatment she'd received then had taken its toll on her body and, in particular, on her heart. A heart transplant was her only hope. Of securing a future. Then one night a call came from the Great Ormond Street Hospital. A donor heart had been found and was being flown in. Charlotte, accompanied by parents Andy and Sue, was driven up to London and the whole church was called to prayer. The next morning, as we waited anxiously for news, in amongst the many phone calls that were being exchanged, I received one from Sue who was in great distress. They've got my baby and they won't leave her alone. Charlotte had made it through surgery and was in intensive care, but nothing had prepared Andy and Sue for just how intense that care would be. Two nurses were constantly working on her, whilst Andy and Sue, already wrung out after a sleepless night, could do nothing but stand by and watch and pray. Would you like me to come? I asked. And within minutes, I was on a train to London. I felt so caught up in what was happening that I could barely pray. pray. But it was as if my going was, in itself, a kind of prayer. Well, Andy and Sue fell into my arms when I arrived. It wasn't as if I did or said anything special in itself. But I know that my being there with them that day made the world of difference. Then, late in the afternoon, as I was sitting with Charlotte whilst Andy and Sue went to get showered and changed, she began to come round. And as I explained what had happened and where she was, a tear trickled from her eye down her cheek. It was one of the most beautiful, profound, privileged moments I've ever had. Well, I was one of many people who made the trip to London to be with Charlotte and with Andy and Sue during those early weeks. And many more were connected through a prayer chain. It's this sort of experience that shapes our shared life as church family, just as it does the life of our ordinary families. Being there for each other in the ups and downs of life, in the ordinary and in the extraordinary. That's what families do. Well, as I said, we've come to the second in our new sermon series, looking at what it means for us to be a church that cares. Last week, I was talking about our vision to care, and if you missed it, it might be worth you listening on the website or asking me for a copy, because it sets out what we'll be looking to do and become as a church over the coming months. This vision of the net provides a lovely image of connection, support, and holding together for us to work towards. And today we're thinking about what it means for us to be there for people. How can we learn to be watchful, attentive and present in such a way that communicates, I care about you, you matter. In our first Bible reading this morning, we find Paul writing to the Christians at Thessalonica. It was a church that he'd founded on his first missionary journey, And it's clear by the way that he writes that he held a deep affection for the believers there. They'd not only welcomed Paul and his companions on their visit, but they'd received the message with great joy, and they were living it out with enthusiastic faith. They'd really got it. And I wonder whether this was in part to do with the quality of relationship and shared life that had developed between them. Paul writes about how it had been we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children and for you know how we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God and to me this is the sentence that really sums it up we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us these people really mattered to him and they knew it and responded to the love and care that was shown to them by going all out for God. You do know when, someone, when you matter to someone, don't you? And it makes a difference to how you respond, to how you live. So being there for people is, in the first instance, about the genuineness of our love and affection for one another about being intentional just as Paul was to share not just the gospel but our lives as well with each other. But you may be wondering what does this actually look like in practice? Well just as I was saying last week it can be the little things that count. The message, the phone call, the card that says congratulations well done when there's good news to be shared and celebrated. Or conversely, the card, the phone call, the visit that says, I'm sorry to hear what's happened. What can I do to help when times are tough? Paul exhorts us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It's about learning to be appropriate in our response. Not necessarily putting ourselves under pressure to say or do anything very much but communicating care by our noticing, our listening, and just by our presence. And we need to learn to listen with our eyes as well as our ears. What's going on in someone's expression or body language? What's being communicated by what's not being said as well as by what is being said? Watching for those little nudges or prompts that come from God – it may, may well be no coincidence that you bumped into that particular person in Sainsbury's or out walking the dog or on the school run. You may, be, you may only have been present for that person for a few moments, but it could have made all the difference to them because that's what God's like. Then sharing our lives with others is also about doing things together, eating together, working together on projects, sharing what we have with one another, doing fun things together. Now, of course, although we're all connected to one another in a broad sense, it's simply not possible to share our lives with absolutely everyone to the same extent. So it's really worth asking God to show you who are the people he's especially giving you to connect with, to share your lives with. Who are the people you can give to and support? And who are the people who inspire you, who you can learn from? And then be intentional about doing things together. Look for opportunities. Create opportunities. I was talking to Diane Bakewell recently, and she was telling me about a deliberate strategy that she adopts. If she's ever asked to do anything, she tries not to do it alone. She looks for someone that she can draw in to do it with her, whether it's making coffee on a Sunday morning or washing up after the vision night or visiting someone in need. That way, the net of connection gets broadened, it gets strengthened, and others are drawn in. Being there for people in the everydayness of ordinary life builds community, it establishes trust, so that we're much more likely to be able to be there for one another when times get tough. It's not easy to reach out and ask for help when we're struggling, but it's easier to do so if a relationship already exists. So what about those times when something happens and it's like the bottoms fallen out of your world? A bereavement, a redundancy, a cancer diagnosis... The betrayal of an affair. How do we learn to be there for one another in these tough times and to be there in a way that's helpful, not unhelpful? Well, I found my thoughts turning to Job and his comforters. Some of you will be familiar of the story of Job in the Old Testament. He's described by God as a blameless and upright man, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Then Satan, God's enemy, goes to God one day and says, Well, yes, but that's only because you've blessed him. Take away the blessing and he'll curse you. So God gives Satan permission to test Job, and bit by bit, everything's taken away his livestock, his property, his children, and eventually his health. After all of this, his wife challenges him Are you still holding on to your integrity? curse God and die. But Job didn't. He simply sat in his suffering before God. And then along came his three friends. When they saw him from a distance they could hardly recognize him and they began to weep aloud. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. There are times when no words are necessary or appropriate. There's nothing that we can say that will help, that can change change things. Our presence is enough. Sheila Cassidy, who's founder of the modern hospice movement, describes it like this in her book, Sharing the Darkness. What those who suffer usually want is that this thing should not be happening to them that it should turn out to be a bad dream, that they should be rescued, cured, kissed better, made whole. But since this cannot be, they want someone to comfort them, to hold their hand and to face the unknown with them. The gift of love and human warmth is something that we all have within our power to give to one another, and it's a gift of great worth. Is there someone you're aware of right now who's going through a tough time? Ask God to show you how you could give that gift of love and human warmth to them. And dare to believe that you could make a difference. And please don't feel that you have to go with answers, because if we go back to the story of Job, where his friends began to get it wrong was when they opened their mouths. They tried to find reasons and give answers for his suffering, and it just wasn't helpful. It's not easy to stay with someone's pain, to absorb their questions, their doubts, their accusations, their anger, without trying to rush in and fix things. One of the things my husband Chris and I are involved with in the church is the marriage and the marriage preparation courses. We use material produced by HTB, the same home as the Alpha course, and it includes testimony from a number of sofa couples. Well, my favourite couple are Miles and Deborah. He's Canadian, of Viennese descent, and she's very English. He speaks of how he's learned over the years that when Deborah's struggling with something and she needs to talk about it, what she wants isn't for him to fix it or to give answers but simply for him to listen. And as he does this, he says, she works it all out for herself. It's very clever. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for doing things to express care for others. In a couple of weeks' time, Sai's going to be speaking about practical care. But what I am saying is that we shouldn't underestimate the healing power of presence. Sheila Cassidy puts it this way, so the spirituality of those who care must be the spirituality of the companion, of the friend who walks alongside, helping, sharing, and sometimes just sitting empty-handed when he would rather run away. It's the spirituality of presence, of being alongside, watchful, available, of being there. And it's this sort of spirituality that we see lived out at the foot of the cross in the reading we had from John's Gospel this morning. There, near the cross, near enough for them to be able to hear Jesus speak as he hung there. There stood a small band of Jesus' followers that included Mary, his mother, and the disciple Jesus loved, who we presume was John. In the agony of all that Jesus went through on the cross, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, spiritually, It must have brought some small measure of comfort for him to have them there close to him, people who he knew loved him. They witnessed his suffering and they cared for him in it. They didn't run away. But you know, the thing about this part of the crucifixion story that always gets to me is the way in which Jesus' followers weren't just present for him, he was present for them too. Jesus, in his last dying hours, cared about his mother. He cared about what his close friend was going through, and he cared about what was going to happen to them when he'd gone. So he gave them to each other. There was a mutuality about what happened there at the foot of the cross, which I think is really quite beautiful, and something for us to take on board as we think about what it means for us to be there for each other. When we're in a difficult place we can feel incredibly vulnerable and it's hard if we feel that we're always the ones in need, always on the receiving end of care. We need to learn to be those who can not only be there for others but who also allow them to be there for us and again this needs to be something we're intentional about. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Sharing our lives with one another is about letting each other in, into the good and the not-so-good stuff that's going on, both within us and around us. And as we learn to be more open with one another, so relationships are strengthened. Trust is built and God's kingdom comes among us more fully and more powerfully. So let's ask God to show us what it means for us to share our lives with each other. Let's ask him to give us opportunities to be there for others and to give us the grace to allow others to be there for us. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we make that our prayer this morning, that you would teach us what it means to be a church that cares, how to be there for one another, both in what we're able to give and in what we're able to receive. And we pray that in and through all of this, your kingdom would come here on earth as in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.